This is Increment Vice. The podcast that explores Paul Thomas Anderson's inherent vice, one scene at a time, with your host, Travis Woods. Obsession comes in any number of forms. Sometimes it takes shape in the impossibly tall and hourglassed outline of an ex-old lady materializing in the doorway, like a thousand film noir femme fatales before her, bringing with her a mystery alloyed with love and regret for a wayward P.I. to lose himself in. Sometimes it's a partner or a lover, or someone who's maybe one and the same, taken from us by dark crews answering to the ancient forces of greed and fear, performing the the eternal shit work to unravel whatever goodness time has left unravaged. Other times, obsession comes to us in the light, flickering at 24 frames per second. A movie carrying with it a dream just as absurd as it is sad. Like the ache of a wistful memory you just can't help but postcard to yourself. Straight from the depths of your subconscious right to the forefront of your mind. Some movies are like that and the more and more you come back to them, you're less and less sure of what it is you expect to find. But somehow more and more convinced of your obsession's essential righteousness. You two belong together, even if you'll never really know why. Old Norman Mailer once said that obsession is the single most wasteful human activity because with obsession, you keep coming back and back and back to the same question and never get an answer. Yeah, well, maybe so, Norm, but maybe that's why we come back. Maybe we don't want the answer. Maybe we just want the trip back, the journey through the past. And maybe this don't mean you're back together, but still, you need to see your ex-old. The one who always hurts you, all the same. Some people are just like that for us. Some movies, too. Obfuscation is a bomb. Paranoia or conspiracy or lamenting the tangled reasons and non-reasons and imagined reasons for the end of a relationship, thinking of the past, of ghosts. Often these types of rabbit holes are comforting, as long as they don't become sinkholes and often all can intertwine in a rambling interior narrative of connections and what-if thinking that busies your mind from what you're frequently avoiding, pain. Wistful memories are a lot more soothing, even if they make you sad. In Paul Thomas Anderson's Inherent Vice, hippie, stoner, romantic P.I., Doc Sportello listens when his ex walks back into his life and bringing a labyrinthian mystery says, It isn't what you're thinking, Doc. He answers, don't worry, thinking comes later. It does, and sooner rather than later. Thinking that becomes muddied and strange and absurd and hilarious and ominous and beautiful and ugly and... What does this mean? You can get overwhelmed by these complexities. You can also be exhilarated by them. They're recognizable insanity, and it is recognizable, even bafflement is recognizable, of it all. Inherent vice seeps into your soul. That's today's guest, writing about the strange, searching emotional rhythms and fractal-plotted, shaggy-dog, detective-story digressions of Inherent Vice in a piece published on the glorious New Beverly Cinema's website. And like the film itself, that passage is an apt description of her writing. Searching and strange and beautiful, emotionally rhythmic, full of digressions and lyrical, far-flung observations that always ride a wavelength back to connect to the subject at hand. 
and that writing, which you can find on our own site, Sunset Gun, as well as for the aforementioned New Bev, Sight and Sound, Criterion, Ed Brubaker's Criminal Series, and various other lucky locales, coupled with her obsession for inherent vice, was a major, major, major reason I wanted her to be the guest for this scene, my favorite scene, the introduction to the mystery of Doc and Shasta. Another reason is that she's recently adapted the wildly strange and raw and hypnotic 1946 William Gresham novel Nightmare Alley into a script to be directed by Guillermo del Toro, so she's no stranger to odd, difficult-to-adapt novel-to-screen translations. And finally, she's on to the show today, diving into the dark, mysterious waters of the moment Shasta Fay walks out of a 35mm dissolve and back into Doc's life for this very special scene because, frankly... She's Kim fucking Morgan. That's why. My favorite writer about all things film. Kim, thank you for coming on today. Oh, that's so nice of you. I don't deserve that. Thank you. Well, no, now here's where you go for five minutes and you talk about me <laughs> and how good I am. Talk about my essay for a while. Well, I don't have it in front of me to quote. I'm sorry. Oh, Jesus Christ. But your essay is beautiful. I oh, well, thank it. you. Well, it's so wonderful it. of you to say. So that's wow. why you read so it. So unprompted. Okay. Now I have, okay. <laughs> yeah, feel free to liberally quote from it, too, if Okay. You want. I mean, can you well, pull that up? I have to look it up now. All but right. Thank well, you. Thank you for coming. And before we delve into our scene proper, there is something else that you wrote in this essay when you said that inexplicable morning opening shot of Gordita Beach, that gap between beach pads, yeah. the light, the colors, the music, and you ask something, and I think I ask myself this question more than any other every single time I watch this movie. You write, why is this so heart-achingly beautiful? Do you know? Do you have an answer for yourself? I'm not sure still. I mean, I've actually gone to that location, and I think you have too. We've talked about this. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Quite a few times. It's a sickness, but... Yeah. Yeah. And... uh it's amazing when you go and you look, because it's pretty much the same. It's exactly the same. Yeah. And uh, you wonder, why did he open it with this? I mean, it's a very simple shot in a way. I mean, but it's not. It's so, it it evokes something, and I'm not sure. It's it's the sound of the sea. You can hear people. You can hear the 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 birds. Um I always think of those two little boys that run down yes. right by the side. And you look out, and you're just looking out in that, between the two buildings, out into the ocean. I, You're asking me, and I, 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 I don't know still. I, I feel like it's not just a regional thing. It can't be, because there must be people that don't live in Southern California that see that scene and have the same emotion. And... um what do you think? Have you have you come to uh, solve why that? Because <laughs> I feel that a lot of my love of this movie and why I'm actually a little nervous to be talking about it is that I I don't want to deconstruct it. I don't want to because I don't know if I can exactly. Yeah. And I feel like I'm constantly grasping, which is why I love it so much and why I keep returning to it. Um, but uh, well, that's something else that you that you've written about when you talk about you about this film in your essay you said you know there are those who yearn to untangle the plot mm -hmm. but for me among this is me quoting you 
But for me, among the many riches of watching Inherent Vice is searching to find something, yeah. something elusive, something you attempt to hold on to, but you know you're not going to find it exactly because the movie works on an emotional current unlike any other thing I've ever seen. And that is true. I don't think there's any film that makes me feel that way. When you wrote that it's working on an emotional wavelength, unlike anything else you've seen, that, that to me, that's inherent vice. It mm-hmm. is, I've seen funny movies, I've seen depressing movies, I've seen stoner detective movies, yeah. I've seen hazy, lazy, 70s, into the 60s, hangover movies. But none of them have this strange, textured, ephemeral feeling that like you said you don't want to investigate it too much which is funny the person saying who's saying that is hosting a show about inherent vice um but this show is more is less about hey let's solve inherent vice let's sit down like doc and write on the side of our our kitchen bar you know who coy harlingen is and how he knows um ensenada slim or Shasta Faye Hep- Hepworth. And that's a great scene because it actually kind of does really map out everything. It mapped the whole and plot's we, right and we, there. And we talked about that, how people get very confused. It's like, that, it's, it's not that confusing, you know? <laughs> if there is one thing that gets me angrier about Inherent Vice, I always just want to grab someone and like hold my phone up to them, pull up YouTube and just play the trailer. If it's a quiet night out at the beach and your ex-old, ex-old lady suddenly out of nowhere shows up with a story about her current billionaire land developer boyfriend and his wife and her boyfriend and a plot to kidnap the billionaire and throw him in a loony bin, <laughs> that's the opening narration of the trailer. That's the whole movie. Yeah. Throw in a little bit of sadness. Yeah. That's the movie. Um, but no, the thing that I think maybe you talk about when you ask why is this so heartachingly beautiful is because it feels so, it's because you don't want to take it apart. You don't want to deconstruct it. And I think part of the reason you don't want to delve too deeply and start Rubik's cubing it and trying to figure it out is because it feels fragile. It feels like it's going to break to Mm -hmm. me. There's something about that, that washed out opening image between those two beach pads that it just, it feels tissue thin to me. It feels like when you're dreaming right at dawn and if, you're almost aware that you're dreaming, and if you think about it too much, it's going to pull you out of the dream, and it's going to wake you up. And you don't want to overcomplicate this movie and try and deconstruct it too much because I think that essentially kind of ruins the dream of the movie yeah. a little bit, which, again, is ironic considering this is going to be like a 45-episode podcast <laughs> about Inherent Vice. That said, I t- there is it's the fragility of, I think, memory and time and how you have to be careful with these things. And um, do you do you mind if I interrupt you for a moment? Uh, episode's over. <laughs> um, Kim, I thank you for coming today. This has been this has been great. It's been illuminating. No, you can finish. No, no, go go nuts. I I I also think as dreamlike as that is, it's it feels very real too because you think of a time where you maybe wake up early in the morning, uh, or it's it's dusk, it's getting near night, and you actually do look out and look out at the water like that. And I have done that before. And you are thinking, and you're probably thinking, I mean, it's almost like your eyes and what you might be thinking. uh, It's timeless. It takes place, it's Gordito Beach, 1970, but it, it, it could be now, and it is now, because we've gone and actually seen that space. So it's like you think about the times that you have just 
sort of stared out at the water and had various feelings or thoughts because when you do look out at the water and just take in the sounds and the waves and everything, you can have all kinds of emotions. And so there's this dreamlike quality as you're talking about, but then there's this very real quality. And he manages to do, to, to capture that in that one moment, it, I think. I don't know if you agree with me, but. Um, no, 100% I do. So, yeah. you know, it is kind of like if you got up in the morning, yeah, like if you were maybe even half awake and holding a cup of coffee and you looked out and you were thinking of, could be anything. You could be As your mind of, is starting to cohere for the day and you're, st- you're just starting to fall into place. Yeah, and who you are. and sometimes the sound of the water and all of those sounds do there's it's soothing, but there's something. Well, it's vast, it's endless when you're looking out at the water, so it's mysterious too. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I it it, but nevertheless, when I see it, I still can't quite. We are talking about it, but I can't quite break it down. Why it just immediately hits me in such a heart achingly beautiful way where and that's something that we've spoken before and a couple of Fridays ago I think we were both avoiding a deadline yeah deadlines and we were talking about this movie on the phone and one of the things you said and it it illuminated something for me that I had never really thought of before but really kind of captured my feeling about the film which is you said and I could I could tell that you were really like trying to reach through your mind to to, to really uh, explain what you were feeling. And it was, that was, you said, I know that I'm obsessed about this movie. And part of the reason I'm obsessed with it is I cannot figure out why I'm obsessed yes. with this movie. Yes. And there, that, that is, I think that's a, I think that anyone who's listening to this show who loves this movie, and I can't imagine someone listening to the show who, who hates it, but that it, I, I can imagine them all nodding fervently w- hearing me say that because I think that's something that we all feel, which is we, we all we all agree it's a great movie. It's well acted. It's funny. It's sad. It's beautiful. It's pretty. The soundtrack's amazing. It's gorgeous. But there's a million movies like that. Yeah. And this one has caught us. This one's hooked us. And yet it's really hard to, to sit down and again, ironic, host of a 45 to 50 episode podcast saying this, it's really hard to explain why I love this movie. It's it's really hard to explain like why talking to you about it right now, I have to like, I have to hold back tears a little bit because I, I get so like overwhelmed thinking about the story and about Doc. Mm-hmm. And I trying to figure out why am I obsessed? Why do I, why do I have to keep watching this movie? Why do I have to immediately buy tickets? Anytime I see that a rep house is playing this, and again, God bless the New Beverly Center. I know. Um, why? And it's, I've, I've, I'm recording a lot of these episodes out of order. I've spoken to a lot of people about this, and what's interesting is their answers are usually all the same. They're like, I don't know. I just know that I am. Yeah. I know that I am. It's almost when someone, someone asks you, "Why do you love the love of your life?" Well, I just love the person. Like. I don't know who are you the the IRS a lawyer yeah. I don't know I love him leave <laughs> I love her leave me alone and that's that's part of the the draw of this movie is I don't know that you can quantify and you almost are afraid to try to quantify because it almost would you don't want to reduce the film in any way or at least that's my fear um 
and even in talking about it, you know, I try to be careful on how much I, I talk about my obsession because I'm like, I, I, I want I want to stay obsessed and I don't, I don't want to understand my obsession to the point where it's, this is no longer interesting to me. Did you have a point when you were watching it that you thought maybe there was a reason that you kept going? Because um, when I first started seeing it, I was kind of sad and um, it would comfort me. And um, I thought, is that why? But then, no, I mean, you know, uh, I still have the feeling I'm not in that, and I'm not in, a, in the same space. I can be in a different space mm-hmm. mentally, uh, and I don't. I still have the same response. So, uh, but I would, I would go because it was. Uh, while the movie has a is very melancholic, it would. I found it comforting, and uh, I felt. I just kept wanting to return and be in that world, even if the world was scary within that world. And I think one of the things when I was writing that essay was uh, when I was talking about how having these thoughts that kind of muddle your mind are comforting because you don't want to really face, you know, everything. And so kind of having everything uh, uh, not clear is nice to be living in a gray area because you certainty is well certainty is certainty is uncertain there is no certainty no and it, but, it, but if you feel that there is certainty or there's an end it's scary and exactly. i don't want that yeah. i don't like how that feels and uh <laughs> i does anybody really like how that feels no. i guess some people do that feel so sure of themselves about everything you i don't know? think fans of this movie would like no it. but i mean there are people that do they don't they want everything explained they want you know i mean i like to i don't like people to lie to me or anything but i mean you know this idea that there's such honesty in the movie there's such emotional truth but yet there's a feeling it, it i don't want to say it's a drug-like feeling where you're sort of under the influence but you are a little mm-hmm. bit so you you're you're taken kind of out of yourself and within yourself. I sound really like I'm really tripping out here, but I mean it does do <laughs> a that a little bit. So, appropriately yeah, so. It is. But there's something to be said for that for ambiguity. And there's something to be said for those kind of ambiguities and wanting those kind of ambiguities both as a mirror to the ambiguities we live with, but also because ambiguity can be kind of a comfort, a comfort food. I I well, like if you go to a movie, let's say you're sad, let's say you're going through a bad breakup and you go see like a nice love story and everything happens nice at the end and you go, it's the fucking worst. Yeah, that, right. <laughs> you know, you'd rather see uh, Doc and Shasta at the end. Like, is it going to work out? You know? This don't mean they're back together. No, but it's so beautiful. And then it means there's still love there. And it means yeah. that everything was sort of everything is really worth it. No matter yeah. what you go through in life, even if it fucks you up and confuses you and makes you sad, it still makes, I don't know, it makes you a richer person and makes life more interesting. Certainly life is interesting in this in this movie. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, I also like spending time with Doc because uh, he's someone who's uh, sort of misunderstood and people uh, underestimate him and he's actually a very good person and that I sounds love, so that sounds very simplistic but he is a very good person i think it's really easy for surface viewers or people who know the film more by reputation or by the trailers to go to to underestimate doc like so many people in the film mm-hmm. in the char- the characters themselves underestimate doc uh, i love it to keep going back to that trailer jesus 
I love I love what Sorta Leash says when she says uh, he ain't a good he ain't a do gooder, but he's done good. Yeah. And you no know, dog has like a humongous heart. Yeah. And is is far more observant and cagey and canny than he gets credit for. Yes. Um, even if when he has to take notes, you know, if you look, if you thumb through his notebook, you're going to see stuff like something Spanish. That's his clue to find a place in Los Angeles. It'll help him. Something Spanish. Yeah. But narrows it down. Um, but yeah, he he is. I think I think deeply, deeply misunderstood. And I think part of that is because it's easy to want to quantify this movie as The Big Lebowski 2 yeah. or something of that nature where he's just more of a stoner goofball when he's not. He act, Doc cares about people. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I know we're getting wildly digressive here, but this is a podcast about inherent vice, so I don't know, <laughs> I don't know what anyone expects. <laughs> the scene that gets me, and actually um, a scene I'm worried about talking about on the show, that's why I don't know why I'm mentioning it now because it's going to happen now. Um, I might need to like bite my thumb here in a second to keep from okay. getting all getting all emotional. There's a scene in the movie after Shasta's come back, and Doc's head is totally spun about as to what what the hell is going on. Are he and Shasta even together? What does it all mean? And he's sitting there with the the postcard that she sent him yeah. when she was on a three hour tour on the Golden Fang. And he's just st- he's got this thousand yard stare and he's crying and sort of Liege, and he's like, I'm working myself in the brain freeze here, Liege. And she's like, well, you know, put, let's put it another way. What's what's going to keep you up at night when this is all over? And oh, shit. Uh, <laughs> he's he says little kid blues saxophone players. Mm-hmm. And you see this just one tear go down his cheek and he he's thinking about. Coy Harlingen mm-hmm. betraying all of the ideals that Doc holds to be true, and despite that, and despite how much he hates a snitch, he just says, "You know, little girl growing up without her dad, that just that doesn't seem that doesn't sit right to me. Mm-hmm. That doesn't that doesn't sit well with me." And, you know, he could do a lot of things at the at that point in the film. He could walk away from it all he could try to fight for Shasta he could try to extricate Shasta from the golden fang he could do any number of things he does the one thing he doesn't have to do he does the one selfless thing and that is it's the one the one good thing he can do in this whole situation is put a family back together just one family it's mm-hmm. not going to save the world it's not going to stop Nixon or Vigilant California or the golden fang it's not going to stop Mickey Wolfman from becoming the one Caucasoid face on the the Vegas Strip for the FBI, but this one little girl will grow up without the little kid blues, and that's enough for him, and that that kills me, and the fact that he when it, when he when he puts them back together, there's that that long pushing of him in the car looking at the passenger seat where Shasta should be yeah. and isn't because that's the choice he made, and he's watching them reunite at the door. Yeah, and, and, and then he has to put his head like he can't even look. He yeah. just looks. He looks at Shasta's place, the place where he, you know, he didn't chase after her to put her there. He instead got Koi and put Koi in that seat and brought Koi home. And I'm gonna look away from you now for a moment and, <laughs> and compose myself. But yeah, and I, I, that's a totally different scene than the one you're here to talk about today. But that to me, 
I also like that's Doc. He's I, a hero. I like when he says too. He won't even allow him to say. Uh, what does he say? I oh, he's you. like he's like you know what you know what they say it was the Native American tradition. He says that's you, something you, a hippie said. That's uh, some, yeah, he's, yeah, he's like if you, if you save a life, you know you're yeah. responsible. And before he can finish saying responsible, he's like, forget all that, man. That's just some old hippie said yeah. that. You saved your own life. Now you get to live it. Yep. That's Doc. He won't even take credit. I know. And I guarantee you he didn't get paid by Hope Harlingen for no. this gig either. And he wouldn't accept it if she offered. But he, no, that's his ethos. He saves someone. He's like, no, you saved your own life. Yeah. Uh, now go live it. And God, God damn. You know what? I tell you what. Why don't you just, you got some free time. We'll just talk about the whole movie start to finish. You want to do that? <laughs> yeah, let's just do that. We'll just pop it on and we'll do like a commentary track <laughs> instead of talking about this one scene. <laughs> because I get the feeling that's where this headed. this headed. But before we dive into our our scene that you are here for. Um, I want to journey through the past a little bit. Um, I know you mentioned it a little bit about what your mind space was like when you saw this, but when did you first see Inherent Vice? And walking out that night, like, do you remember how you felt having seen it for the first time? I saw it uh, right when it opened. Oh, did I see it at a screening? I'm trying to remember. I've seen it so many times now that... Um... There was a big one at the Ace... No, I did like not see right, it Right, and then there was one at the Egyptian, and then it was released in L.A. proper. I think I saw it at, um, like, on a, um, was it a PGA screening with a friend or something like that? And then I saw it repeatedly. Same. Uh, <laughs> I honestly, I'm trying to think of how many times I've seen it in the theater. Uh, I was in a daze after I saw it. I don't know about you. Um. I didn't want to, I didn't really even talk to, I, w I was with a friend and I didn't really even, I just went home and I was, uh, I was very moved and I just thought about it and thought about it and then went and saw it again. Um, I mean, again, you're asking me to <laughs> articulate how I felt then. I, I, it's almost like I needed that movie right at that moment too. Um, it's exactly how I felt when I saw it. I saw yeah. it on a date, and I was like, this is, I'm sorry, I don't want to be rude. This has been a lot of fun, but I got to go drive around for a couple hours by myself now and think about what I, what just happened, Did what I just saw. Did you stay with that person? Or yeah. Is that, yeah. Oh, good. Okay. I mean, uh, she knows I'm a nut, but um, yeah, I, I I had to digest. and like. I, but there is something about this film. <laughs> is what You say you, you're trying to count out how many times you've seen it theatrically. I saw it, I think, uh, so many times w during the initial theatrical run, mm -hmm. I've seen it so many times now because I'm lucky enough living in a city where it seems like it plays at least once every one or two years. You, you'll catch a run of, mm -hmm. of screenings. And I went to a couple of the new Bevs um, so I could see both Model Shop and A Long Goodbye uh, with it this past October. Um, did you go to both of the double features? Goddamn right. Good I did. for you. Thank you. After having just seen The Long Goodbye like a yeah. week and a half earlier uh -huh. at Beyond Fest. But how many times are you going to see it on the big screen? You should see it as many times yes. as you can. But something you mentioned, and I think you're right about, and I think we're seeing a little bit of this same phenomenon with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. The people who love this movie are not content to see this every couple of years. It's something that you compulsively lovingly keep returning to because you want to live in the world of the film and that's i the only other film i felt that way about in recent memory is once upon a time in hollywood where i watch it and i'm like do you remember 
um, about 10 years or so ago uh, when James Cameron's Avatar came out. Mm -hmm. And uh, the people that really loved that film, they started complaining that they were getting like the shakes and like DTs uh, (laughs) once they would be without the film for a couple of weeks because they said they were getting withdrawal from that world, which at the time I was like, oh my God, listen to these nerds. Uh, you know, God, it's not great a movie. Uh, but uh, listen to these nerds getting upset about not being able to see this movie for a couple of weeks. Of course, now I was the same person who saw Inherent Vice on a Sunday night and was already booking tickets to see it again the following Tuesday morning and then booked tickets again the next weekend during its initial run because I had to keep going back. I had to get back into that world. And there is something about it. Like you said, it's it's fraught and it's dangerous and it's sad and it's ambiguous, but there's something about it that is it's like it's like a warm blanket when you've got the flu. There's something comforting in the misery of it. Did you ever go in the morning? Oh yeah. 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 <laughs> That's yeah. when you know you're committed when you go to the morning one. I, I, I went to <laughs> yeah. a Saturday morning yeah. screening at the Arc Light yeah. and it was like eight fifty in the morning. <laughs> I went to one of those too. And a couple w- of them I think, where you just get up and you're like I'm gonna go see it. It's a, it, it, and it's great to see it in the morning, isn't it? It is. It's There's, so great to see it in the morning. Your, <laughs> your mind is still not yes. quite entirely there. You've, you know, I saw it at the ArcLight here in the, in in Hollywood, and you. You're just walking right off the, the 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 sidewalk, and there's something about sunlight. Mm-hmm. Um, and I talk about this in the last episode with Blake, but there's something about sunlight in L.A. in the morning. That weird white milk spilt light that um, David Lynch talks about hypnotizing him the first time he came to L.A. He couldn't believe that light, natural sunlight, could look like this anywhere. And there's something about getting just blasted in the eyes with that white glare first thing in the morning and then walking into a cavernous dark room mm-hmm. and sitting down with a movie that it's not hard to digest. And again, I will argue anyone to the death that says it's confusing, but it is a lot. Emotionally, it's a lot. Yeah, That's a lot on a Saturday morning at 8.50 a.m. But yeah, that that's a great time to see the movie. And I don't know why. I don't. I, I can't quite, other than just ranting about it like the way I just did, I love, yeah, it's a great movie to walk in off the street, see it first thing in the morning. New Beverly Cinema, if you're listening, get on to that. Um, we need some 9 a.m. screenings. But yeah, it, I'd watch it any time of day, but morning actually, weirdly, that's there's a weird morning melancholy feel yeah. that, that matches and makes it work. And there's less people in the theater, too, so you sort of feel, you know, you're... Yeah, it was, just, it was, it was me and a bag lady. Yeah. Was it, just me and her <laughs> for that, that, that one morning. It was just, just the two of us. I gave her a salute. She gave me a nod. We enjoyed well, the you film. Well, you, you kind of know who's uh, with you in your obsession. <laughs> That's my crowd. There. That's yeah, my crowd. Yeah, if you're there in the morning. Yeah. Me, you, and a bag lady. Yeah. I'm sure I was that one of those where you were. Maybe I was the bag lady. I don't know. I feel like right now I wish I wish people could see me. There's a there's a coffee cup dropping from my hand, slow-mo, usual suspect style as I'm putting it all together <laughs> that Kim was the bag lady. Yeah. And I'm realizing she's been the Kaiser Soze haunting me this whole time. On that note. Because we're now an hour and 25 minutes into this episode. Are we? No, it's like, no, we're not. like a half hour. Okay. Um, it's time for us to watch this scene and talk about this scene specifically. My all-time favorite scene from any Paul Thomas Anderson film. Uh, God, I'm, I'm getting all hypnotized and dizzy by it just talking about it. 
So we're going to dive in and we'll be right back to talk about it. <laughs> Thinks he's hallucinating. No, just a uh, package, I guess. I need your help, Doc. Uh, you know, I have a an office now. That's like a day job and everything. I went to the phone book. I almost went over there. Then I thought better for everyone if this looks like a secret rendezvous. So, what are you keeping a close eye? Just spent an hour on surface streets trying to make it look good. this guy gentleman of the straight world persuasion okay doc he's married some uh, money situation and the wife uh, she knows about you she's seeing somebody too but it's not just the usual. I think they're working on some creepy little scheme. To make off with Abby's fortune? I think I've heard of that happening once or twice. And you want me to do uh, what exactly? Yes, they want me in on it. They think I'm the one who can reach him when he's vulnerable as much as he ever gets. They're asking to sleep. Maybe you'd understand. Are you still trying to figure out if it's right or wrong, Shasta? Worse than that. How much loyalty I owe him. You're groovy. All right, if motions aside, Look at the rent. How much of uh, your rent's even picking up? All of it. Pretty uh, hefty. For Hancock Park. You're giving him IOUs for everything, of course. Oh, fucker. I know you're still this bitter. Me? I'm trying to be professionals all. All right. How much of the uh, wifey and boyfriend offer to cut you in for? Isn't what you're thinking, Doc. Don't worry, thinking comes later. What else? I'm not sure. Sounds like they want to commit him to a loony bin. Back when they were together, she could go weeks without anything more complicated than a pout. <laughs> 
Now she was laying some heavy combination of face ingredients on Doc that he couldn't read at all. <sighs> Come to think of it, there'd never been this much sorrow in her voice. Heard you seeing someone downtown? Uh, Penny? Some kind of junior DA? Yeah, you think uh, somebody down there could solve this before it happens? Not too many places I could go with this doc. Talk to Penny. See what we can see. You're a happy couple. They have names. It's Mickey Wolfman. Is it always in the paper? The real estate big shot? Yeah. Can't tell anyone about this, Doc. Huh? Deaf and dumb, part of my job. How do I reach you? You don't. I moved out of my old place, staying where I can anymore. Don't ask. Hey, room here. Let me down my car. Someone might be watching. Let me down, Doc. Mm, don't worry, I'll... No, I mean really, ever. Sure, I do. No, you're always true. And I, toes oh. yeah um i gotta slap myself in the face a couple of times yeah God. i don't know where you want to start with all of that if you want to start anywhere i will say that what gets me right off the bat in this film before a word is even spoken by anyone but sort of liege as shasta enters the room and doc is just staring out to that you know that gunmetal blue twilight right sweetly and if you listen really carefully he's humming to himself um the surf rock of the tornadoes uh, dreaming on a cloud like it's Mm -hmm. so sweet and i have to believe every time i watch this now that he's this very moment thinking of this very woman that's walking into his into his kitchen and it always chokes me up a bit the way he he turns and he looks and it's like he can't believe it He's like, that you, Shasta? That's that jarring dream feeling of seeing someone you were just thinking of. Yeah. Or when you're, you were thinking of someone right before they call you on the phone, uh, which only seemed to happen with landlines. You know, it doesn't seem to happen anymore, that <laughs> yeah. feeling with cell phones. But the idea that 
she, she's already in his mind and on his mind and in his heart before he even realizes she's in his home. That breaks me up into like a thousand pieces every time I watch this intro. And then she says, me. thinks he's hallucinating. Exactly, yeah. exactly. She knows. Ex and, you know, she has a feeling. And, and the fact that she, you know, he he is surprised also because she doesn't look how she normally looks, how he normally sees her because no. she's dressed in flatland gear. Flatland gear. Yeah. Just the way she swore she'd never look. Yes. And I love the, you know, we were talking about the sweetness of Doc and the kindness of Doc. Of the openness on his face, mm -hmm. the way, you know, I feel like, uh, you know, we kind of associate Joaquin Phoenix with these very daunting, threatening, you know, twisted portrayals at times. I find him to to be so, like, wonderfully sweet mm -hmm. in this film and the openness with which he receives her. And he's so he's there's something a little sweetly mutt-like little dog-like about dog and his loyalty and his love of people he's so happy that she's home like he's so right like he's not freaked out he's not he's just like hey you know you you want a beer you want a beer i'm gonna have a beer do you you want a beer yeah um yeah it, i i love how warmly and how and i guess this is what breaks me up how ready for he for her he is to come back into his life you also get this feeling that these are two people that have a history right away even if you hadn't read the book yeah. you would know that uh and he understands her and yet he doesn't because he's trying to study her face he's trying to figure out her emotions you know and he, what does he say are you still trying to figure out if it's right or wrong you know yeah. um he he knows her well enough to know that uh she has flaws she she maybe isn't always true. She says he is. Mm -hmm. We don't know either. And yet we feel uh, affection from her as well. I don't feel like she walks in there and you think, oh, this woman's trouble. You know, it's not <laughs> some dumb uh, stock kind no. of neo-noir femme fatale type situation when she walks into the room. Though it's set up, you know, he's a PI and the, the mysterious woman walks in and they have a past together. It totally subverts that instead of uses completely, that. Yeah. And 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 so this warmth comes out of him, but also he goes right down to business, you know, and mm -hmm. keeps the emotions out of it, and like starts asking about emotions the rent. Aside. Yes, <laughs> and uh, you know he he's going to help her, but then when he says, you know, you can stay here, you know that oh. that moment. <laughs> it's you know? so sad and plaintive when he's, you know, I I got a place here. Yeah, and of course. I feel I feel like Shasta is more self-aware about whatever their relationship yeah. is or is not than Doc is, or maybe maybe she has fewer illusions about what their relationship is, whatever that may be. But I also love that she can't tell him no either. Like I feel like in that moment, I expect her to say no, Doc. Like I'm, I'm, I'm the fact that she breaks down a little bit and just says, you know, walk me to my car. Yeah, doing everything she can to not start crying because of what's going on, but also I think because I think there is a part of her that would like to be standing there with a Country Joe and the Fish t-shirt mm -hmm. and uh, the bottom half of some flower print bikinis and just be able to say, yeah, okay, sure, but she can't. And back to what you were saying, too, about the way Doc studies her. Mm -hmm. So many of the shots in this, in, uh, in this introductory scene 
are these those the, the gorgeous kind of mishmash of blue twilight and that that garish orange lamp yes um you know to quote crocker fenway the lamps the, um the lamps the lamps um as his you know these insane that's one of my favorite random lines in the it sums up everything. Sorry to go no, off track. No, no, digressions, digressions, digressions. It sums up everything that he despises and it disgusts him almost more than that he's with his daughter. The lamps. <laughs> not, not that a middle-aged dentist is sleeping <laughs> with his teenage daughter, but where? These tacky the hotels. The wallpaper. Yes. The lamps. While listening to original cast show tunes, yes. my daughter, the lamps. <laughs> But as that as that that garish orange light mixes with the blue twilight on his face, and you have these insanely blue Joaquin Phoenix slash Doc eyes, you know, narrowing his his eyes narrowing over these like manhole sized uh, uh, irises, which kind of mirrors to the last kind of mirrors to the last shot of the film too. Exactly, when you get to the, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And he's he's so trying to read her and understand this woman and. She's impenetrable to him in a way. And and not again, not in, you know, that total femme fatale no. uh, Barbara Stanwyck. You know, she reminds me of she reminds me of um she reminds me of Linda Darnell in Fallen Angels. Oh. You remember that? Yeah, oh yeah, I love she, that film. She reminds me of Linda a lot. If I was gonna recast this movie, mm-hmm. it'd be, uh, it would be, you know, throw it fifty years back or so. It would be John Garfield as Doc and Linda Darnell mm-hmm. as Shasta Faye. She's got a very, very uh, Darnell quality about her that is inscrutable but not villainous. Just kind of sad and fucked up. Yeah, and, and trying to. She's in Fallen Angels. She's just really trying to survive in the world among all of these men. Exactly. Yeah. That men that want her. That even even. Uh, Pops that runs the you know she gets sick of him <laughs> oh, hovering over her you know everyone's hovering over her wants something from her and she you could say she's greedy and she wants a rich husband but she really wants to just she's just trying to navigate her way through this shit. yeah she has her life is not easy yeah and you get the feeling that Shasta Faye's life is not exactly easy either so I have no. sympathy for her immediately and I think that is a very good comparison actually because and also her her entrance although. Dana Andrews doesn't know her, but that is such a great when she eats the hamburger. Yeah, and yeah. I love that movie. I'm so glad you brought that up. But um, All right, everybody, hang on. We're going to go off, record a really quick side podcast dedicated to Fallen Angel. Oh, I can we'll talk be about back. Yeah. We'll be back. We're going to talk about Inherent Vice. I swear <laughs> to God, we are going to talk about this movie. I promise. But yeah, no, Shasta's clearly been through some shit. Yes. And I think, you know, the book makes it a little bit more clear that one of her reasons for leaving um, was that she wanted to become an actress yes and this also occurred around the same time as cielo drive and things got very weird for her and her group of friends yes and now she's like linda darnell uh her character in fallen angel she's having to navigate and negotiate a very dangerous and difficult world to to maintain her footing and in fact in the in the novel she uh pynchon says when he's trying to read her face this you know he'd never seen her so um um uh what is what is it he's he never where she's so much laying sorrow. The, the face ingredients uh, doc had never seen so much sorrow on but, her face but before. in the book he mentions that he wasn't sure if it was maybe from all those acting classes yeah but that's not yeah. in the movie I but um he, he thinks about that for a second so yeah in your essay 
and Jesus, at this point, I should just read the whole thing. Um, <laughs> you mentioned that Doc's relationship with Shasta is like a simultaneous love story and a ghost story. Yeah. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean, she she haunts him. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's story, the, the scenes that, that uh, sometimes he can't even remember them. You know, remember the Ouija board? And then he has to remember, and they, they have that great, beautiful mm. scene that's set to uh, Neil Young's Journey Through the Past and mm-hmm. the Running Through the Rain. I know. That's one of my favorite scenes in the whole movie. I mean, every um, scene is my favorite scene in this I movie. Know. And that's, that's a marquee sequence. I yeah. love it. But there's something about this one that always... Oh, yes. But, uh, you know, and, and just the way he remembers her, uh, memories are sort of like ghosts that are haunting you. The way she's always appearing in, this, in, in the film, I think... Um, I mean, I would never go so far as to say that Doc is ever imagining her, but... You know, when you're haunted by missing someone, they feel almost like a ghost. There's an actual bereavement. There's an actual death feeling sometimes, when even if you know they're there. And yeah. and then there's scenes where Bigfoot, you know, says uh, she's gone. We've, you know, and then he thinks, oh my God, she's dead. You know, um, she went all groovy on this. Yeah, she baby. went. She went all <laughs> yeah. So, and he, he rolls that joint and says, uh, to, to, uh, to Shasta's Shasta. safety with love, Don. Yes. God, we've seen this a lot. <laughs> Remember that. I mean, we've already... What, what we, a beautiful little Valentine, though, when he does that. Doesn't that, doesn't that just touch you when he rolls that joint and smokes? I know. It kills me, because it's I, like it's an old hippie tradition. You do that to save someone. Yeah. I mean, you know, you're, you're saying we've watched this too much. I mean, Jesus, you know, we've already, like, driven to the, <laughs> to the actual location multiple times, which is some sign of sickness of one one sort or another like like i i I think we were talking a couple of weeks ago and i told you i feel like jake gillenhall at the end of uh, zodiac where i'm like i've walked it door (laughs) to door 15 steps i've been i have i've i've walked from doc's pad to that that place between um little houses on Mm -hmm. the beach but jesus we're another digression we don't need um, we, I like I like that he used Journey Through the Past too because I think that song is really apt in terms of the whole film. When you're well, thinking, yeah. when you're thinking, I mean the entire film, not just that scene, but just how you think about people. And when he when uh, Neil Young sings, uh, "Do you think of me and wonder if I'm fine?" Is that uh, the yeah? Which yeah. is such a simple but beautiful thought that everyone wishes. If do you miss me? Do you do you wonder if I'm okay? When you're thinking of me, do you even do you care? Do you think I still hurt about yeah. you? Yeah, like we we left bad, and do you do you do you hurt about that? Do you wonder if I hurt about that? Do you feel bad about that? You know, PTA talked about that. You know, he was when he was doing press for the film, he said, you know, the obvious story here, uh, in in about the, the you know the hippies of inherent vice is that they fucked up and they lost and they let it all slip away, but and this is this is a direct quote from him. I think the deeper thing in the film is what Doc has for Shasta. That's something that everybody can get with. Mm-hmm. The girl I shouldn't be with, but I need to know who she's fucking. Where did she go? Mm-hmm. What did I do? That was really heartbreaking in the book, how much you can miss someone. And, yeah, I mean, that's the perfect song for that. And that, that lyric, that's the, that's the one that always gets me is when he's like, do you think of me? And wonder if I'm fine. Do you care if I'm okay? Do you wonder? Or does if, do I mean that little to you that you don't? And, um, you know, back to, you know, PTA. Will I, I still be in your eyes and on your on mind? On your mind. Yeah. God. We're going to start. Oh, my <laughs> goodness. This is going to turn into like a therapy session really, really quick. But, I've, had, I've had those thoughts before. <laughs> 
uh, I like you know something else PTA did say. Speaking of Neil Young, um, you know there was an interview where someone was really pushing him to talk up the noir aspects of this film, mm-hmm. and it's the film's noirish enough on its own. I don't think we need, you need to really shine a spotlight onto it. And uh, Anderson said, you know, the noir idea was something we were trying to get rid of. Just sort of ignore that. Yeah. We kept thinking about trying to make a Neil Young song out of this movie, melancholy for the past, kind of heartbroken at the way things have gone. But still, t- but still hopeful. You can still tap your toe to it. Doesn't that sound like Doc? Yeah. You, st- you know, you're still hopeful. You can still tap your toe to this thing. And yeah, and every junkie's like a. Uh, oh God! Every, like a setting sun. Setting sun. Um, boy. Different this, song. Sorry. This is getting heavy. I'm gonna have to whip out like my high school I've notebook. I've got needle and damage done. I'm getting to the yeah. <laughs> Um, but back to Shasta, and you oh, you know, you were saying how I'll get into Pocahontas next if we want to. <laughs> Actually, that's a great example because that has such a uh, surreal, you know, when he says, uh, uh, you know, when he's talking about Marlon Brando, Pocahontas, and me, and they're sitting. You know, yeah. They 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 go what they go to the they go to the Astrodome and and uh, you oh know, God. <laughs> right? I know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, wow. Weird. Weird. Deep cutting it. Roar about Borealis, icy skies at night. You know, <laughs> that's one of my favorite songs of all time, and I love that song because it's so evocative of a dream, and yet again, it feels like a real feeling that you it's would real, have. And you're like, I did I have a dream about Pocahontas and Marlon Brando? Yeah, and then also it's about Hollywood. Yeah. So it's like, anyway, that's a very side thing. But I think what a beautiful thing that Paul Thomas Anderson said because I think that is it does move in that kind of a rhythm of Neil Young because Neil Young's also one of my very favorite uh, musicians uh, uh, ever. He'd be in the top five for me, I think. He means so much to me. He's, so n- He's Neil Young. So well, Who's better than Neil? So, uh, you know... Uh, Doc even looks like Neil. A little bit, yeah, Isn't he does. That great? But yeah, I, I gotta say it again. Melancholy for the past, kind of heartbroken at the way things have gone, but still hopeful. You can still tap your toe to it. That's inherent vice. That's an hair advice. Have you read Neil Young's book on his cars? I have not. I wrote a whole essay about this. Um, I have not. He wrote a whole biography, an autobiography, all through his cars. It's beautiful. Oh, my God. And he talks about little, he talks about, I'm sorry, this is a very side thing. But this is a, a podcast about hair advice. People, <laughs> people are going to be patient, Kim. I swear. I promise. There's a great story. He tells stories about every car he had from when he was a child till now. This is a and real book that exists in the world. It's a real book, and he did all the drawings. And and uh, at one point he talks about a car that he had when his parents were breaking up, and he remembered his mother was in the driveway, breaking all the records, breaking all the record albums because the father had left, and the car they left it in the car that they had there, and it's all done through. And the father was telling him, which he thought his father had taken him on a long drive before that, and he realized I think my dad was telling me that I was he was going to leave my mother. This is when he's a little boy, and. Uh, um, or a young, very young, and just the sight and the thought of Neil Young seeing his mother breaking records in the driveway. But he, you know, it, it's it's Neil Young is not the most. He's not an open book. He doesn't talk about himself a lot. But when you read he'll this, he'll talk book, about the cars and he'll talk and, and the memories that they open. Yes, and you get a lot of insight into who he is through this. But I recommend this. Uh, well, if I book. Va- if I vamp for like. 20 minutes can you run home really really quick and grab that for me and i'll just i'll talk about you know whatever 
Yeah. Okay, cool, cool. Yeah, All right. Good. Kim will be right back. When we get back, she's gonna re- we're going to record the Fallen Angel podcast, the New Young <laughs> podcast, and then we'll finish up this episode. But the to get back to that opening scene when she comes in, I love that you bring up the colors um, because she looks very uh, – he's very blue. She's very orange. And she's very orange. And um, in the book, he says, uh, Pynchon writes – when she, when they're leaving, it had been dark at the beach for hours. He hadn't been smoking much, and it wasn't headlights. But oh. before she turned away, he could swear he saw light falling on her face, the orange light just after sunset that catches a face turned to the west, watching the ocean for someone to come in on the last wave of the day in to shore and safety. I feel like that beautifully captures how she is even lit in those scenes, and especially when she's when he's when she's uh, driving away and says, "Watch, watch your toes." You won't believe me, but last night mm-hmm. when I was prepping for tonight, yeah, and I was rereading that opening chapter, that paragraph I went back to like five y- different times, yeah, because of how lyrical and gorgeous mm-hmm. and how it you almost feel like he's describing the scene that PTA shot, yeah. As if, you know, I mean, hey, maybe he is, you know, we don't know anything about pension. He, he might be from the future. We don't know. But <laughs> he, he, it, he might be in here somewhere. Actually, he's going to be. We the don't next, know he's, where he is. He's, he's the next guest. So we do need to wrap this up. Um, Man, but, that would be quite a get. Tom, are you listening? If you're out there listening, I'm here. <laughs> I'm a Skype call away. Um, but, you know, something you said, you know, when you're like, well, he's certainly not hallucinating her. I don't. You, you, no, no, no. Um, at the same time, I do, we're going to jump around just a little bit. You know, I think you could make an argument that Sorlige doesn't exist in the film, that, that she is. Yeah, I kind of compared her to Jiminy Cricket. When I, I love that. Yeah. Yeah, the this, this surfer gal Jiminy Cricket. Mm-hmm. You know, it's entirely possible, and I'm going to steal that. It's <laughs> entirely possible that she's not there. And you can make you can make an easy argument that she's not. You know, with with Shasta... I don't know if I would make an argument that any of her sequences are not happening as we see them, but I do love how they are played just slightly askant, just a little askew, so that you you wonder how much of it is happening for real versus what Doc might be interpreting. You know, I you know it always throws me that when she comes back to him after being on her three hour tour, she's wearing the clothes that Doc remembered her yeah. in, the Country Joe T-shirt. And idealizes and her in, too, really. That's exactly. what he loves about her, yeah. And and how much of that is simply a visual metaphor for his idealization? And how much of it is she really just, these are her comfy comfy Gordita Beach clothes, so she's wearing them. That's something that I often worry about, and I don't want to get on too deep a digression, but I do wonder sometimes in that scene specifically, which, boy, that's going to be... That's going to be a long one to talk about. Is how much of that is happening as we're being shown it on the screen. Mm-hmm. Um, this scene, though, I find to be entirely concrete, entirely real. I think so too. But one thing that I do find very, very, very fascinating about Shasta Fay is how she bookends in Heron Vice. And there's a few memories, and the one cameo, the the sex scene cameo, if you want to call it that. Uh, in the middle of the film, but beyond that, she primarily just anchors either end of the story, and she uh, 
suffuses the long stretch of film in between with uh, this is gonna get pretentious, but with like with her star stuff, you know how like all of the material, all of the matter that, that that exists now is from the Big Bang. We're, we're everything that we're made of is just pieces of the Big Bang, and she is like this story's Big Bang and Big Crunch. Mm-hmm. She's the beginning and the ending, and the story can't begin nor can it end uh, without her. And, but even further, to me, inherent vice is her, and. You know, it is just a strange super cosmos of Shasta Faye. Everything in this film, everything that happens in this film happens because of Shasta Faye Hepworth. Every every rabbit hole that opens up in front of Doc only happens because of Shasta Faye and because of her coming back into his world the way he does. And there's something there's something so right about that because I think it concretizes which I don't even know if that's a word. It concretizes. <laughs> I like it. Oh, great. Thank you. Well, you can steal it. Um, I'll take Jiminy Cricket. Um, it concretizes that feeling of when someone huge has left your life mm-hmm. and the whole world looks like them after. Everything in the world feels of them and a part of them and connected to them and, and, and springing forth from them. And... It's such a sly, canny way to present this story because I think it makes, it embraces and uses that idea as a metaphor, that feeling that when someone leaves, the whole world takes their shape and everything everything in our world becomes part of them and of their world. And what is inherent vice, but Doc basically falling down this rabbit hole that is entirely of Shasta Faye's doing and every every zigzagged corner of it, every zigzagged back alley of it leads to something that having to do with uh, Shasta Faye. Coy Harlingen comes from Shasta Faye. Mm -hmm. Mickey Wolfman comes from Shasta Faye. Um, You know, the Golden golden Fang was brought into the lives of so many of these people by Shasta Faye. And to use that as that kind of metaphor for romantic loss, again, it kills me. And that's that's, what's another... uh, that right there is another reason why I am so obsessed with this film because of how how uniquely it delivers these things that we've all felt before. You felt you were feeling something like this when you first saw the film. Mm-hmm. But I think even people who, you know, might have been having a better day than you were that day, they identify with that feeling. They know that feeling. Oh, yeah, I've known that feeling before, too. Exactly. And so <laughs> that's another thing that's about this film. It, I feel like it presents that in a way that I haven't seen in something else. There's a million films about heartache. There's a million films about loss. There's a million films about obsession and about regret. But I don't know that I've ever seen them presented the way they are here in the kind of just sly in the corner of your eye, just kind of pushed under the screen the way they are here. Does that make sense? Yes. And yeah, it kills me. And I, I it's a reason why I like the book or why I like the film more than I like the book. Mm-hmm. And again, no offense, Tom, if you're listening, I do. I enjoy the book a great deal, but um, what I what I think is so fascinating and so interesting is Pynchon's novel uses um, a broken romantic relationship as a metaphor for the disintegrating nation that he remembers. Uh, I think to f- facilitate this his very like angry ruminations on an American dream betrayed. And I think that's so much of what the book is about. Whereas I feel like Anderson totally inverts that dynamic and his inherent vice uses the imagery of that 
decaying country and the ominous forces tearing it apart, he uses that as a metaphor for the pain of lost love. Yeah. And there's a, I think there's an extraordinary romanticism that runs through PTA's work. Mm-hmm. I, I know some people that find his work very cold and aloof, which that's, I, I don't know what film. I don't either. Which, I don't, which of I his even... films they've seen. Because I find his to be some of the most kind of weirdly and wildly passionate. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't even understand that. It's an argument I've had, I swear to <laughs> really? you. Really? Yes. Yeah. I don't. The face you're making is one that I've made times a thousand many, many times. But yeah, um, I love that the, 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 his kind of extraordinary romanticism explodes in this film and inverts it and uses. Um, the political text of the novel and pushes it to the side as subtext and the movie it's just all about how you miss someone it's still there though no it's there it's there it's just it's not on i don't think it's to the fore the way it is in the novel do you think that part of it though because of the end of the 60s it seems like 1970 is such a different time they're bringing up manson bringing Mm -hmm. up you know hippies weren't as trusted anymore um I think she even says something at one point about like when you dig like having one of those Manson girls, you know the. Um, so you're the one that's been stealing my magazines. Yes, <laughs> um, and I mean, there's also this feeling of going into the '70s of a sort of uh, cynicism and paranoia mm-hmm. that's that's very much in the movie, um, which also you you could feel. Uh, from lost love as well. Exactly. I don't know if he feels cynical necessarily about her. But I don't think he does. I think he feels uh, a melancholy, but I don't think he actually feels uh, necessarily cynical, if that's the right word. I'm not sure if that's the right word, but because everything is so absurd that, as I've said, there's almost a comfort in going, well, everything, and this is not a nihilistic concept, but just the idea that everything is so absurd anyway, mm-hmm. that all those interconnections, it starts, they actually do make sense. And then when you're watching it now, everything so, is crazy now. So, <laughs> I, you know, right? Mm-hmm. In the world? It's crazy. This is So, I mean, I don't even, <laughs> I don't, it, it seems very timeless to me in many ways when I watch it now. It's, I mean, I'm not just set in the 1970. I feel like I'm sitting now, but maybe I've seen it too many times. I have lived with this movie so much that I don't even. No, no. You know, this you could overlay so many of the plot points of this film like a lattice upon anything you see on CNN. Yeah. On a given day. I mean, what is the golden thing? But this organization, you know, PTA called it. It's, you know, it's this organization that always just seems to fuck things up for the good guys. <laughs> and I mean, do you not feel that way every goddamn morning that you yeah. turn on the news? You know, the you know, I, just to, I mean, I was going to say, just to let you know what a nerd I am, but I host a Inherent Vice podcast, so you probably already know what a nerd <laughs> I am. But as, what, what a nerd I am that there are so many times where I will like muse to myself when I'm watching the news. I'll be like, it's Golden Fang again. It's Golden Fang. <laughs> when some it, something insane happens on the news that, I have to. Your initial reaction is this: this can't be a real story being reported in 2019. This can't be the way things are. Mm-hmm. Not in America. Not like this. And but then you, you're seeing it. You're like, oh, I, I guess it is. Jesus Christ, Kofefi. Jesus Christ. Um, golden thing. It's the golden thing. And yet, 
despite that and despite the knowledge that there is a group out there like that, or as Doc would call it, the fully fucking weird outfit that kills people, <laughs> I don't think he ever lets himself get cynical. And again, I think that's part of Doc's magic and heroism. And that's why he is he is a do-gooder in a way, is that he keeps pushing. He, like a Neil Young song, he stays hopeful and he keeps tapping his toe thinking he's going to get through this. He's going to try to get through this. He's going to get his people through this. And, yeah, bless Doc's heart. I love him so much. There's also, I, I, I quoted from Gravity's Rainbow about paranoia, what Pynchon said. He said, if there is something comforting, religious, if you want, about paranoia, there is still also anti-paranoia, where nothing is connected to anything, a condition not many of us can bear for long. Mm. Which is... We, 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 the clinical condition would be called 2019. Yeah. <laughs> Do you think? Yes. Just, just call it 2019. Um, and yet, I think something that people have been talking a lot about this year is the idea of the Hangover movie because of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's, it's a fun, or I don't know if fun is always the right word for it, but um, it's kind of a unique genre. And I think that Inherent Vice is very much of a piece of that, the hangover movie, the hangover for a decade and the damage done. And um, the idea that, you know, I mentioned this in the first episode that uh, in that very Didion-esque White Album, we tell ourselves stories in order to live, yeah. fashion of all the um, the shipwrecked survivors of that decade. Um, Doc is constantly studying people, looking for their story, or conversely, they're constantly coming to him with pieces of a story so that he can provide them with a narrative in order for them to live. Mm-hmm. And, yeah. you know, a lot of people complained about this movie. The people that didn't like it when it came out, they said it was really boring, that it's a bunch of people in rooms talking to each other. You know, where are the shootouts on the beach? Where's the, you know... Where are the the big neo the shootouts the, on the beach? You know the the neo noirisms. Uh, you oh, know God. the, the, the detective that, movie yeah. shit. And and I say I don't mean it derisively. I love detective movie shit. That's one of the things that drew me to this film. But you know, for me, you know, the film is so much about these people. And the reason I say this is Shasta is the first of them bringing to Doc these broken pieces of themselves in their lives, saying, hey, make a narrative out of this for me. Put this together for me. Like, mm-hmm. I'm reeling here. You know, I'm, I'm, or as, he, or as Doc later says about himself, you know, I'm working myself into a brain freeze here, Liege. Yeah. And, you know, when it kills me that people find this boring. To me, it's like this, these pearls on a long string that form this, this necklace, these, these, in, these, these scenes of Doc meeting all of these strange ne'er-do-wells and characters <laughs> and each of them bringing to him a larger piece that tells this this whole about people who they're longing they're missing they're all missing something some of them are missing a gang some of them are missing an entire neighborhood like Tariq Khalil yeah entire neighborhood in Artesia is gone some of them are missing a daughter missing a daughter the lamps <laughs> the wallpaper some of them are missing their partner yeah who maybe oh, they yes. were in love with oh god we haven't even gotten into him well that's a whole other we're not talking about him well he's technically not in this scene no. but you know shout out <laughs> really quick 
Josh Brolin as Bigfoot Bjornsson. Is there anything more perfect? I know. I mean, yeah. the he tears through this film like a deranged and a heartbroken <laughs> Ralph Meeker. And it is one of my favorite things in 21st century yeah. cinema. Is um, That's who, by the way, in addition to Garfield and Linda Darnell, t- travel through time and get Ralph Meeker. Ralph Meeker is a... Cast him as Bigfoot Bjornsson. As Bigfoot, yeah. Come on, that's perfect. But uh, yeah, I, you got to love... Pynchon loved Garfield, too. He did. He's... Yeah. He, yeah. You know, for if, if any movie nerds out there that haven't read the book yet, Garfield is a huge thread that winds his way throughout the novel. Yeah. Um, but yeah, really quick, everybody loves Bigfoot. We love Bigfoot. If you love Bigfoot, you know what you ought to do, Kim. What? You ought to come back and do a Bigfoot episode. Multiplanicaco. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah. Did I say that right? You did. Yeah, I did. You got to you got to yell it though. I didn't I don't I can't yell tonight. Oh. I'm too mellow. Podcast over. Um But yeah, I would love to talk about him. All right, we got to come I, back. I love his character. I That's an understatement. Well, and okay. I'm so moved by him. All right, we're going to go down a quick Bigfoot call so because I can't him, I, I can't not talk Bigfoot for a whole episode. I can't skip Bigfoot. Just l- his aching love for Vincent and Delicato, <laughs> his his partner. I know. I mean, it's 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 a satirical and kind of subplotted version that is meant to you know repeatedly echo Doc's own nostalgia. I think yes. for for Shasta Fay throughout the film, and both in you know their their anguish over what inherent vice is taken from them both, Shasta from Doc, Vincent and Delicato from from Bigfoot, and it unites them on this. Uh, this bizarre wavelength of, of shared misery and almost brotherly empathy. And to the point where I love that, like, there are moments where Doc can actually use Doper's ESP and sense Bigfoot nearby because they are so on the same wavelength. That great scene where he's at Mickey Wolfman's house and he's looking through the ties and he's just able to stop and go, Bigfoot. Yeah. And then Bigfoot's outside, wait, just, and, and Bigfoot looks like he's waiting specifically for Doc leaning against the car. And, you know, I know it's a funny scene. I know it's a funny scene. Parts of it are funny, rather. If you're not devastated when you see Bigfoot with teary red eyes, hasn't shaved in a day or two, kicking down Doc's door at the end and saying, hey, you haven't called me back. Oh, that's really We sad. went through some shit the other night. And they have that, again, they're on such the same wavelength. I love that they're saying the same lines back and forth to each other at the same time. Weird. Um, but yeah, he's like, you didn't call me. Like, he's such a lovelorn, broken, lost soul. You didn't call me. Like, you didn't check in with me. You've been dealing with the fang, unloading all this, uh, <laughs> all this, uh, Southeast Asian heroin, and we're not going to talk. And that he, he so wants to connect to something, something of Doc's world. He just eats the plate load of pot. I get that it's funny, but God, you know, maybe again, this is part of our unique sickness. Uh, uh, being fans at the level that we are, like uh, my face is wet when that scene's over because I'm crying. I, feel I know so it makes bad me cry too. I know, like you want to hug him and you know, or you want to give him a keeper. Yeah, because you know, he does need a keeper. Do you ever have Doper's ESP? Do you feel like that's a real thing? Mm, I do. I think it feels like a real thing when you're high. <laughs> you know, I mean, Doper's ESP. I mean. 
well, we've, we've talked about it. Haven't you had those moments where you're thinking of someone and then yeah. they call you or you're thinking of someone and you hear a knock on your door and you open your door and there they are because they were thinking of you too? Yeah. Like Doper's ESP, right? I think so. I've had that. Yeah. I believe in Doper's ESP. It's like magic. I believe in it a lot more when I'm high. Yeah. But uh, no, even now. Yeah. Doper's <laughs> ESP. It's a real deal. I do think. I think uh, it can roll around when you're not even high. Yeah. I think. You can trip around, find the yeah. find the right wavelength. Someone else is on it. You're able to say hi. And then there they are, standing in your doorway with a mystery. And they need your help. <laughs> so you got to help them. Yes. It's Doper's ESP. You know, as we wind this up, there's something that... I feel like I should have talked more. All right. We'll start talking. No, no. Go, Kim. Go. No. You're here. You're already here. I'm in a mellow mood. That's a good mood for this movie. Yeah, but... Mellow's good for sometimes this Sometimes I'm a little more... I feel like this is a mellow scene. I don't know why I'm doing this. You can't. No one can see what I'm doing with my hands right now. I'm making. Kim like... is doing these very kind of witchy, um, hippy dippy. Like yeah. it looks like her, her finger should be like releasing incense from underneath her fingernails. It's very Stevie Nicks. It is. Yeah. That's what it is. It, this is very Stevie <laughs> Nicks, like circa 1986 music video, like on a roof somewhere. Yeah. There's a video like that. Wow. We really sound high. I, I, I promise you that we're not. We're, it's okay. We're, we're I professionals. Think it'd be okay. I think it'd be okay. We're professionals. Professionals can be high. They're high all the time, probably. Doc's a professional. In what world are you living in, Kim? <laughs> Which that goes on. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> but remember, PCP will open that door, kick you through it, slam it, and lock it back it's behind true. you. It's true. I could. Well, we could talk about that scene too. And I don't mean to be pointing at you. She's and pointing. I'm pointing. <laughs> For everyone listening, Kim is very emphatically that pointing is, at me. That is sidebar. That is a great scene because not only does he get high, mm. but he has to take he has to care. Fight his way through it. He has to take care, and you see how able that he is. You see how you see. He's not a goofball. He's not. No. A, he's not a stoner. He's and all not... those people complaining about the sh- no shootouts or anything. That's a great scene. <laughs> I wish those people could see how angry you are. I am right angry. Now as I am suddenly <laughs> like, oh shit! She's taking her bracelets off. I am. Babe. Like, <laughs> Kim's getting ready to throw hands. I think. If I'm not seen after this show, I you agree with me? We're, no, you're no, perfect, thousand, you're perfectly I, cool with me. No, I'm perfectly. It's that cool person over there in that other room. That no, I'm kidding. That's actually a world famous DJ. So we should I'm probably be really nice oh, really? to him. Yeah. Is, that, is it? <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'll say hi. Um, I don't know who's in there. <laughs> um. Wow, you're on a tear. You should be hosting this. I don't think so. No, I don't, I don't think I can anchor it. You're you're better at doing that. With a little bit of speed, it helps. <laughs> Um, we're back to benzedrine again. Yeah, we're like, the, we're, it, no one clear, wants benzedrine cl- anymore. Where do you get that? Clearly, something's on my Your mind. grandma? Who has it? <laughs> yeah, from my Gammy, Gammy Woods. Oh, okay. That's sweet of her. You know, when you got to meet a deadline, you got to meet a deadline. Kim. She gives you butterscotch candy and, like, and benzedrine. Werther's Originals and those little spongy peanut shaped things that yeah. one's grandma had. And a little bit of speed when you need it. Okay. She understands. Like, I'm going to have to talk to your grandma. Gammy Woods. I'll give her, I'll give you her number. <laughs> All right. Um. <laughs> wow, wow! This took a turn. Yeah, it did. It really did. Um, not a bad turn. Um, I hope not. <laughs> I don't know how to talk about anything serious now. I was well, gonna say something serious. We can talk about the when it gets to the uh, can song, which is the final. You know, I did want to mention that Paul Thomas Anderson is not the first director 
to use a can song that would in be his Sam no, Fuller, the late great Sam mm-hmm. Fuller in Dead Pigeon on Beethoven yep. Street, which if you don't know it, it it's a um, uh, 1974 episode of a German police procedural yeah. procedural. Oh my God! I swear to God, guys, I am I am not on anything procedural. <laughs> uh, that was essentially turned into a full length film, and it does have a weird, broken up, kind of like remixy version of Vitamin C at the very yes, beginning as a cop mm-hmm. gets killed. And yeah, I don't know if that was an influence on PTA. But it's a cool thing to mention on a podcast about all things inherent vice. Mm-hmm. So there you go. And you know what? Who doesn't want to talk about Sam Fuller? I want to. All right. No, but that's another. Is part. that going to be like? Is that our fifth? What are we on? Like our fifth podcast now? Sam Fuller. <laughs> all right. So we're going to do Sam Fuller after Linda Darnell. We we had a long conversation about Sam Fuller. Once. We did. Yeah. yeah. We're not too sure how he'd fare in these. Uh, I was saying in he's these a very. Twitter times. I think he's a very. Uh, pro-female filmmaker. I agree. Very much. I don't think everyone would see that. I think they're wrong. But (laughs) Kim's getting ready to fight an imaginary (laughs) wing of film Twitter right now (laughs) as we go further and further and further away from Inherent Vice. But yeah, we did talk about Sam Fuller. And yeah, who doesn't love Sam Fuller? If you don't love Sam Fuller, you you shouldn't be listening to the show. I don't want you to listen to us. Go away. (laughs) <laughs> Go do something else with your time. Don't listen to this show. Go watch something else. <laughs> Jesus. What happens when you're losing your vitamin C? What does that mean? You probably get really pasty. I would say you get a little lethargic. Well, that's the lyric of the song. So yeah. Oh, I know. I know you know. I saw the movie. I know. Did you? <laughs> <laughs> um. You're losing your... Yeah, I've seen the movie. I know what happens. Uh, no. Um, no, actually, um, it's actually a very serious condition when you, uh, when your vitamin C levels well, drop. Well, you mean scurvy, you mean? You, you, well, yeah, and you, uh, <laughs> side effects include you start, um, you start babbling about various drugs that your grandma gives you, <laughs> and you start talking about, I do need vitamin you start C. talking about random, uh, pretty underrated genre directors <laughs> from the 1950s and 40s and 60s. Um, you start uh, ba- uh, repeatedly mentioning Linda Darnell for no reason, although everyone should. She's wonderful, and everyone should look her up. Um, I like that part of the lyric is that she's living in and out of tune. That's a nice... That's a nice line. Mm-hmm. Speaking of out of tune, I feel like you and I have slipped into like a completely alternate realm, <laughs> which that, that, that actually might be what Doper's ESP feels like, but okay. I feel like you and I have slid completely out of reality. That's okay, I think. Yeah, sure. I'm, yeah. I mean, I'm having fun. I can't imagine what anyone feels like listening to this. But you're getting all sorts of cool knowledge dropped on you. German TV shows directed by Sam Fuller. Vitamin C lyrics. Neil Young references. Mm-hmm. Model Shop. Go watch Model Shop. It's Model a good Shop. movie. I just wanted to tell her that I love her. I wanted her to know that I was going to begin again. It sounds stupid, I know. But a person can try. What a great line from Model Shop that is, and it makes me think of Inherent Vice a lot. And he's it, great in that. I, I I will defend Gary Lockwood in that movie. I know some people. People talking shit about Gary Lockwood. Oh, they and talk Model shit Shop? about Gary Lockwood. Yes. I'm gonna have to change the name of this podcast. <laughs> I don't think it can be Increment Vice anymore. I really don't. But but that's but hey hey hey. Because hey. we're supposed to be Harrison Ford, remember? And mm-hmm. some people think, oh, if it only been. I think Gary Lockwood's perfect. There's a th- oh god, well fuck it. We're not gonna talk about Inherent Vice anymore. <laughs> Um, no, there's an amazing and appropriate, I feel like, slate, and I don't mean this in an insulting way, um, kind of surface slate blankness 
that that Lockwood adeptly has in that film. And I, I, you know, I think he's doing it purposefully, but I think it's something the character needs. There's a kind of washed out blankness to him a little bit that I feel like a lesser actor would would not risk and would not be willing to put on screen to project that kind of. And again, this sound these this sounds like I'm I'm being derogatory. I'm not. There's a flatness to his character in Model Shop that I think is purposeful. I think it's by design. And there's a turmoil beneath it, and you feel the turmoil beneath this kind of projected. Well, yeah, he's 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 going to be drafted. Yeah, he's yeah. got to live with that; it's hanging over him. So, and they're going to take his goddamn car away. Yes, he's worried about his car, and he's worried about being drafted. And so he's sometimes when you're he's depressed, really. I feel, and sometimes yeah. when people are depressed, they're very they're not overly emotive about it. They're kind no, of it's sort, they're sort of sleepwalking through life when you feel like that. What's, that, that. what's that great line Sissy Spacek has in Badlands, that blah feeling when all, mm-hmm. the, all the water's drained out yes. of the tub. That's what it feels like. Yeah, and and that's, I, what he, that's what he's like in that movie. And I think, yes, that's why he's perfect. So I agree with you. But I do, and I promise, I promise, anyone anyone still listening, this, this does come back around. Model Shop was a double feature with Inherent Vice yes. here in L.A. a few weeks ago. It was amazing. But also, he does. It does. Hey, spoiler alert for a forty-year-old film, or fifty-year-old film. Um, it ends with that gray line with Gary Lockwood on the phone saying, "I just wanted to tell her that I love her. Yeah. I wanted her to know that I was going to begin again." It sounds stupid, I know, but a person can always try. Yeah. And that, to me, that's inherent vice to me. That's that. Uh, you know, that's you know, kind of heartbroken at the way things have gone, but still hopeful. You can still tap your toe yes. to it. That's inherent vice, mm-hmm. and. I'm going to get real serious on you. Okay. This is going to be weird after everything we've... That's all right. I like serious. And you're going to have to pretend to be surprised because I've talked to you about this before. Okay. But I've, in preparation for this episode, which to me, this scene is about obsession. And this film is about a million things, which is why it makes sense that we just shot our mouths off about a million different things for the past 10 minutes. But this scene to me, it's about obsession and it's about regret. And it's about those two things coming back home to you, the way Shasta does to Doc. And uh, in thinking about this scene, I really have been thinking a lot about, you know, why do I obsess over this movie? And why do I feel so comfortable with this movie? Why why is this movie one of my all-time favorite films? Not favorite films of this decade, not favorite films of 2014. Why is this just one of my favorite films? Why would this be on my top ten of all time? Mm Mm-hmm. And um, for the past year, the amazing, the devastating Nick Cave, he's taken to the Internet with the venture that he calls the Red Hand Files. And it's a site wherein he's invited fans to send him questions or comments, observations or inspirations. And these messages lead to brutally honest and public uh, written conversations between fans and the man himself. And there was a question last October and a subsequent answer from Cave that has just it's haunted me. That's a good word for an advice. It's haunted me. Uh, Robin from Melbourne, Australia, asked him, do you have any regrets as you get older? I feel I could have just handled things better in my life. I even feel guilty for having the regrets. Do you? And because he's Nick Cave, he gave this amazing and just brutally eloquent response in which he said there is always a temptation to take a position that one has no regrets. There is a death row defiance to this notion that stares down the accusation of the past and says, I am what I am and be damned. We feel that to harbor regrets 
dishonors the very place to which we have arrived. But it can be helpful to remind ourselves that these regrets are intimations informing us that we have developed sufficiently to perceive the nature of our past shortcomings. Regret can be a sorrowing hope that sees the faults of the past through the more lucid and open eyes of the present. They are growing pains as we become better at being ourselves. Most of our past mistakes are consistent with our personal evolution at that time, and the waves of regret simply signal a progression and expansion of our hearts. Perhaps it is useful to see our lives as a series of failed or abandoned dreams, but to also recognize that these dreams are the very architecture of our humanity, to lovingly accept our shortcomings and lay them to rest in the knowledge that growth and regret go hand in hand, as do failure and potentiality. Oof. And I think that for me, ultimately, I know that we talked earlier about not wanting to risk knowing too much of our relationship with this film, the yeah. way maybe sometimes Doc doesn't investigate. The one thing maybe Doc doesn't investigate too deeply is his why he loves Shasta, just that he loves Shasta. And I don't want to investigate too deeply why I love this film. But ultimately, I think that's why I return to it over mm -hmm. and over again. Maybe maybe more than any other movie I know. I, I think, yeah, I think it is. Um, and I think it's because I know that I have managed a, a pretty steady accretion of regrets in my life, some that genuinely, genuinely do haunt me, choices I wish I'd made that, that I didn't, things I wish I'd written that I didn't, um, opportunities I wish I'd taken but didn't. And I think a great, great deal of this film is consumed with those feelings of regret and how they can consume you, how you can become obsessed with them. But ultimately, I do think that the film, and I think its director, understands that, like, like Nick Cave said, regret is a sorrowing hope. And I do think that the film is ultimately more hopeful than the book because, like Cave's, like that sorrowing hope, it sees the faults of our past as a progression and expansion of our hearts and the architecture of our humanity is built by the dreams that don't come true. Mm -hmm. And I can't speak for everyone. I can't speak for you. I can't speak for anyone else. But for me, as someone who's cruised the boulevards of regret <laughs> and has been down that particular exit ramp, I find in this film a sorrow and hope. And to me, that's beautiful. Uh, that's the weird and transient ephemeral magic of this movie. You know, you ask in your essay, why is this so heartachingly beautiful? That's my answer. Within, within inherent vice, I find a sorrowing hope. And it's there from the very beginning in this scene. It's the reason why Doc lets Shasta come back into his house. Mm -hmm. You get the feeling that they probably didn't end well. There's a lot of hints throughout the film by his friends that Doc went through a really tough time after she left. Um, Penny mentions that he was a mess when she found him. Uh, Sancho says, I thought you left all that depressing shit behind, yeah. man. Um, even Sorlige, when they're at Pipeline Pizza, you can tell she's, even if she, if she even really exists, that she's feeling Doc out. Like, well, how are you, how are you feeling? Are yeah. you broken up inside? Are you feeling weird? They obviously went through something heavy, but there's always a sorrowing hope for Doc that things might be different. And so he lets her into his house anyway doesn't kick her out when she comes in. He even agrees to help her pro bono because she sat, she, she, she Shasta Faye Hepworth. What else is he going to do? She also says you are always true. Yeah. 
And he and just like he tries to, the way he cuts off Coy Harlingen when he's like, "No, man, you saved your own life," mm-hmm. and she won't let him. She's like, "No, you really, you really yes. were." Now watch your toes. Mm-hmm. Mm. And does it break your heart? Right before she drives away, she just says to herself, "I'm going." Yeah. God damn it, that kills me. <laughs> well, it's probably time for us to be going yeah. now. Kim. Before we start crying. Well, that's gonna that's gonna be after. That's gonna be after. Yeah. Again, that'll be for the Patreon uh, subscribers. <laughs> I want to thank you so much for talking to me today about this movie that we both love. It means so much to me. Thank you for what you've written about this film, thank which you. is the best essay out there about this film. I mean, I don't know how many there are, but however many there are, that's the best. Um, but and uh, just as you're writing, that's just something some hippie said. <laughs> <laughs> all right that's pretty fucking clever i had this really sweet ac- outro i was gonna do but yeah that's pretty sharp i like that but just as your writing has enriched me as a reader and a writer and a film goer having come through the other side of this with you so too is this conversation and i know that going forward i'm going to be carrying this conversation with me every time i watch inherent vice and the things that we've noticed and the things that we've talked about and that's it's magic. What's better than that? Talking about a movie that you love. Yeah. All right. Okay. On that note, we're going to go drive to Gordita Beach. <laughs> yeah. We're going to see if we can find a guy named Ensenada Slim who still has some bennies. Yeah. They, they have a pizza. Have a pizza. Have some bennies. Yeah. Uh, watch some kids run by some houses. Yeah. That'll be our day. And then, you know, someone will probably bring us up on charges because that actually sounds really creepy like now that I say it out loud. <laughs> Thank you, Kim. Thank, Thank you for, you for having tonight. me. Thank you to everyone for listening to all of those wildly fascinating <laughs> digressions that we took tonight. <laughs> and I will talk to everyone next time during during the next episode, during the next scene, when two very, very different men are going to ask the exact same question. What's up, Doc? Sometimes in the shadows, as the light continues to flicker on, You just happen to bump into someone who's riding the same aesthetic wavelengths as your own. The same karmic and cosmic and cinematic loop-de-loops. And it's as if the contrast knob of creation itself has been messed with, just enough to give the whole conversation an underglow. What Thomas Pynchon would call a luminous edge. And when you can find that in a movie or in a person or in a conversation, well... That return trip back to the questions without any answers Mr. Mailer went on about sure is a hell of a lot more fun, isn't it? Can we do it again next time? Breezing from the beach to pipeline pizza back to Doc's pad before tumbling two-word to the Channel View estates with that hippie-hating mad dog himself? We'll see what we can see next time on Increment Vice.